0: Our words can change the whole world because we are all together, united for the cause of education. And if we want to achieve our goal, then let us empower ourselves with the weapon of knowledge and let us shield ourselves with unity and togetherness. Dear brothers and sisters, we must not forget that millions of people are suffering from poverty, injustice and ignorance. We must not forget that millions of children are out of their schools. We must not forget that our sisters and brothers are waiting for a bright, peaceful future. So let us wage. So let us wage a global struggle against illiteracy, poverty, and terrorism. Let us pick up. Let us pick up our books and our pens. They are our most powerful weapons. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. Education is the only solution. Education first. Thank you.
1: Allow me to introduce to you Malala Yousafzai. You see her there a number of years ago in 2013. At that time she was age 16. Less than a year prior, she was on a ride home from school in Pakistan in her hometown that had been taken over by the Taliban. Violence ruled. But even at that age, she could not keep her voice silent. If you're a teenager in the room, can I let you know that eventually you could be standing on the world stage because of your courage and that you have something to offer? That's not on the notes, but I just want you to know. On the ride home from school after an exam one day, she was with her friends about to enter into her home, and the Taliban stopped her bus and loaded onto her bus and asked the question of all the children on the bus that day, who is Malala? The reason they were looking for her is because even at this time, she had established a voice trying to stand up for education for children and for women in a patriarchal society. Not knowing what was about to happen, Her friends instinctively look towards her as she tells the story. She had put her face in her hands to cover who she was. This member of the Taliban then puts a gun to her forehead, this little girl's forehead, and he pulls the trigger. The bullet traces miraculously around her skull, exits out of her jaw, and lodges in her shoulder. Through a series of increasingly miraculous events, this little girl survives this incident. She wakes up in the hospital and she has to point to letters on a sheet of paper as she's communicating to her caretakers. The first thing she asks is, is my father okay? After she gets out of the hospital, then she gets to work. She says it much better than I could. You're going to pick up a little bit later in this speech. Let's watch this together.
0: Thousands of people have been killed by the terrorists and millions have been injured. I'm just one of them. So here I stand. So here I stand, one girl among many. I speak not for myself, but for those without voice can be heard. Those who have fought for their rights, their right to live in peace, their right to be treated with, with, with dignity, their right to equality of opportunity, their right to be educated. Dear friends, on the 9th of October 2012, the Taliban shot me on the left side of my forehead. They shot my friends, too. They thought that the bullet would silence us. But they failed. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The terrorists thought that they would change my aims and stop my ambitions. But nothing changed in my life except this weakness Fear and hopelessness died. Strength, power, and courage was born.
1: It is staggering to think that God could use events in our life that seem like tragedy to kill the things in us that are prohibiting us from becoming who he has built us to be. You know Malala today. Yes, that's worth applause. You know Malala today because an event was designed by the forces of evil to kill her. But eventually, it became a trigger to give her a voice across the world. Let me give you a phrase as we get rolling today. This is what church feels like at Vertical. Everybody okay? I've been so excited to share this with you because this is one of those teachings, and it may take us a minute to get it out today, but it's one of those teachings that can completely transform how you experience life in suburban America. The Bible has the ability to be able to do that. That's a large feat, isn't it? Often testing and tragedy are the brick and mortar that God uses to turn us into magnificent objects of force and influence. Things that seem like tragedy, things that are trial, the value in them is that they help build us. Show me a person that hasn't suffered. I will show you a person that hasn't matured. Testing and tragedy, Vertical Church, even on a global scale, they're actually good for us. This is what it sounds like to be a Jesus follower. See, when you enter into a relationship with Christ, you enter into an agreement of a new economy. And that economy is upside down. It is a reversal. It's why the Bible can say, why characters in the Bible can say, real people that lived real lives can say the enemy meant this for evil. But in the end, God has turned it around for good. That's how we can be so open about our past and all the mistakes that we've made, the things that you have experienced in your past that seem like they were drenched in evil. You can rescue back for the cause of Christ from the enemy because all they do is highlight the power of God. See, when followed correctly, the Bible doesn't steal life from us. It isn't the big book of killjoy. It actually gives life to us because it helps us make sense, not just of part of our experience, but of all of our experience. This is how the brother, half-brother of Jesus actually put it in James chapter 1. Check that out. The brother of Jesus Christ actually believed that he was Jesus Christ. That may be the largest miracle ever to have happened. He writes this down. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. My gosh, I wish I could tell myself that last year. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, maybe the Bible feels a little bit unapproachable for you, and I get that because these people who wrote these things, they were under the power of God, and they took a lot of time to write them down. So let's kind of Americanize this a little bit. Can we, first service? This is kind of how this verse sounds in American. Trials equal joy, faithfulness, and maturity. So let me ask you a question as you look at that equation, as you kind of soak that in this morning. Are you looking for or longing for these things? Would you like a little more joy in your life, a little more faithfulness in your life, a little more maturity in your life? Let me ask it a little more direct way. If you look back over the past 14 months of your life, is this how you would describe your behavior? Joyful, faithful, and mature. Yeah, me neither. But look, this shouldn't bring us down. This is the Bible doing exactly what the Bible is supposed to do. As we read the Bible, it does a lot of different things. One of the primary things it does is help us take an accurate assessment of where we are. We're going to get to that a little bit later. But the Bible is helping us know where we need to improve. Something that loves you, something that's in true relationship with you will give you the truth enough for you to get better. Remember that God loves us where we are. That's something we say at Vertical Church often. God loves you exactly where you are, no matter how messed up you have convinced yourself that you are before you walked in here today. And we have a lot of messed up people at Vertical, don't we? Some of them are regulars. (laughs) No matter where you are in your story, God loves you. You don't have to earn it. Chris already said it earlier today. You're not here to earn God's love. That's been taken care of. The second thing, though, is that he loves you too much to allow you to stay there. It's a big point, and he gives you what you need to get out of it. Remember, God loves us where we are, and he loves us to call us to a new place. There's a word that Christians use for that. It's a big word, restoration. Let me just give you a clue if you've wandered in like the fourth or fifth time, or maybe it's your first time as a part of this community today. You are surrounded by people who have been restored. Chief among them, number one, the person sitting on this stool today, is evidence of God's absolutely absurd sense of humor that I'm the pastor of this church. <laughs> it's hanging on for dear life, everybody. Here's a big fact, and this is kind of outside of our series stuff, and maybe it doesn't weave in perfectly, but I need you to know this today. God takes what's broken, and he restores it. Oh, he doesn't judge it. He doesn't kick it out. He doesn't say earn it. He doesn't force you to buy a ticket. Your qualification is that you're broken, and that activates his love. Let's be honest, though. Sitting in a church, especially in the American South, it feels very average for a pastor to stand on a stage and say, hey, where you are, you need to change that and get better. Does that make anybody else nervous? I grew up in that sort of environment. There's a lot of guilt and shame that passively, aggressively goes on to the people listening to those kind of speeches. There's a few reasons in my life why growth, why being called to be built into something else, transformation, restoration, or change make me very uncomfortable. Let me just give you a few. The first one is honesty. Sometimes I'm just not in a mood to be honest with myself. Anybody else? It's difficult. I'm scared that I don't have the strength to face what God's calling me to face if I actually have to be honest about what's going on. You can tell I'm hitting that vulnerable place because... Grown men don't cry, right? Here's the second one, lack of reps. Sometimes I just haven't put in the work to grow in my own life and in my story. And when I have to do something that I don't do very often, I get nervous that it's not going to go well. I get concerned that I can't accurately say where I am. So I do what most people do. I just check out. Anybody else have that strategy? You don't have to admit it. That's okay. The last one for me, and this is the most real, is failure. I hate failing. And I hate the feeling that failure gives me. So instead of having that feeling of being a failure, especially if I've got to admit, this is where I am in my story right now today, and it's nobody else's fault, I just messed this up. Rather than having that feeling, I'd rather just go about my beautiful life on Glugstadt and Catlett Road. These things stop us, but they shouldn't. So much of this comes down to one word. Brace yourself. We didn't put it on the screen because I don't want you to feel judged, but really these pushbacks come down to one word, pride. If I'm unwilling to acknowledge where I am so that I can grow, I have a pride problem. Let me repeat that. If I am unwilling to acknowledge where I am so that God can take me where he wants me to go, I have a pride problem. Let me bring in an author, Ryan Holiday, very popular these days. He's not a Christian, but he's read the Bible more than me. You can see it on his Instagram. He says this in his book, Ego is the Enemy. One might say that the ability to evaluate one's own ability is the most important skill of all. Without it, improvement is impossible. Do you hear how Christian that sounds? He's so close to faith and he doesn't even know it. It's a beautiful point that he's making here. It reminds me of a verse in Proverbs. Let me read it for you. Proverbs 16, verse 18. First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. We should be putting that in public as much as possible. If we care about people before the crash, we should let them know. Here's another way to look at this. We all possess a false sense of how ready we are right now. You think you are more ready for what's coming next than you actually are. In fact, we have a phrase that we say in our culture, and we usually say it joking. At least that's the way I mean it. You're probably prepared for this. I was born ready. You ready for this double cheeseburger? I was born ready. I've been training since the Husky days. Back up. We say this phrase a lot. I was born ready. But here's something that's closer to the truth. Those who are ready were built ready. There's a difference between being born some way and being built some way. And the most ready among us have been next to God for as long as possible to be prepared. We need to look no further to prove this point than the stories that God curated for the Bible. The story that he intended us to read to make sense of the world. As we talk about these examples today, I want you to think about the patterns in their lives. I have become a man obsessed with patterns. I have a lot of reasons for that, and we don't have time to go into that. But I do have one that I want to share with you. You'll recognize this phrase. I believe now more than ever, those who don't know the past will be condemned to repeat it. Let me tell you what that means in my story. I've lived days in my past I do not want to repeat I have no desire to go back there. There's nothing for me there except for the trap of the enemy. And if I don't remember my past, I will be condemned to repeat it. Let me take it a step further. There are days in my mom and dad's past and their mom and dad's past and their mom and dad's past that I don't want to go back to. There's nothing there for me. And in your own family, there's nothing there For you in those particular days, and if you don't know the past, you're going to be condemned to repeat it. Today we're going to see the people who follow Jesus are built, they are not born. We'll see that Jesus was given time by Peter and so many other people as well. Over the next few minutes, we're going to take a blitz. Isn't that a great thing to hear from a preacher? We're going to take a blitz through a few lives that prove the people who are following Jesus well invested the time necessary over time to be built into what God created them to be. We are the raw material and God is the craftsman. But in order to be transformed into what he has for us to be, we have got to spend time at his shop and let him work on us. It may feel painful, but he is a caring craftsman. Let's start with Ruth. Maybe you have heard of her. She's a famous person whose story is found early on in the Bible. She experiences tragedy in that her husband and her brother-in-law both die. She seems to be sad about the brother-in-law as well. As a result, her mother-in-law urges her, the only sensible thing for you to do right now is return back to your people and to your homeland. But she, against all conventional wisdom, she makes a different and difficult Decision. Let me challenge you, Vertical Church, if you're here today, I'm not going to get political because there's really no need in it. But sometimes in our culture and sometimes in our family systems, we need to make a different and difficult decision. If God Almighty is to turn the tide of history, especially in our neighborhood, sometimes we, like Ruth, have to make a different and difficult decision. We have her words recorded in this pivotal moment to her mother in law, check this out with this backstory. Listen to what she said. She replies to her mother in law Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Don't you love the strength of the women in the Bible? Listen to how embarrassed we were to say yes. Don't you love the strength of the women in the Bible? My gosh. Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I'm going to live. And your people will be my people. And on top of that, your God is my God. That's a person who's been built. As a result, she supernaturally, in this culture, supernaturally marries again. And catch this, when Jesus was working out his Ancestry.com, guess who he sees? Oh my gosh, Ruth is there. Yeah, she made a decision in tragedy to stick, and God honored it. What a great message. But wait, there's more. You know I've got more prepared. Four lives. We just got finished with one. This is Ruth's great-grandson, his name David, and he had his own building moment. I love this. If you're a man in the room, particularly tune in to me now because David's largest struggle was that he could not get validated by his father. In fact, what we see is he was a shepherd off by himself. He wasn't even part of the family crew in a lot of ways. His brothers went off to war. David was too young. He stays home and he works in the family business, but his dad calls him in and says, hey, your brothers are at war and they need supplies. Would you run them to your brothers for me? David agrees. He shows up at the battlefield. He's looking for his brothers and he sees there's one enemy. You've probably heard his name. There's one enemy across the valley. His name is Goliath. And many of you, especially men in this room right now, you've felt this experience where you were sent to do one thing and then God moves into your life and triggers you and you feel like, I've got to do, somebody's got to do something. David then answers the challenge. Keep in mind, he was only sent to bring supplies to his brother. He famously defeats Goliath over the things that God had built in him when he was alone. As a result of this day and many days after that, David becomes the king, the most powerful man in his nation, refusing the identity of of a forgotten shepherd taking supplies. He takes his rightful place as the most powerful man in the country. Oh, he makes his mistakes, but God used some things to build him. Everybody still with me? Let's move on. Those were from the first half of the Bible. Let's get to the second half of the story. There was a man named Paul. We talk about him a lot in church. We kind of have to reference him because he accidentally wrote most of the New Testament. But what you don't know about his story is he was a religious zealot. He was taught to believe in God in a particular way and that system was extremely important to him and Jesus disrupted his his system. Doesn't that happen a lot? How often have you said, hey Jesus, there's a way we do things here. Paul is this way, he's on a rod, he's got in his mind like premeditated imprisonment and murder for the people who are following Jesus. And God interrupts his story. It's an incredible story as he's on a particular road, God strikes him blind. It's difficult to get around when you can't see. He finds himself in a room Blind, waiting, God then supernaturally contacts another man and says, hey, I want you to go see Paul. That man says, you must be confused. This man kills Christians. We have a way we do things around here, Jesus. Incredibly, this man decides to be obedient to what God has called him to do. He goes over and he sees Paul. The Bible is very descriptive here because Paul, he never forgot this moment. But this man actually comes up and puts his hands on his shoulders, trembling, I'm sure. And the first thing that he calls him is his brother. See, in that room, Paul had a decision to make. He could either remain blind and run from God or he could answer the trigger and the call to be built. Last one, you know we couldn't mention this whole list without talking about Jesus. There's this fascinating story, really one of the only ones that we have of Jesus as a child recorded in the Christian Bible. He was 12 years old. People at 12 years old make weird decisions, don't they? Jesus was the same exact way. His parents took a trip to celebrate a religious holiday. They had a great time as a family and unbeknownst to his parents, when they left, when the festival was over, Jesus decided to stay behind. There was a large group of people traveling. So his parents just assumed, well, Jesus isn't with us. That's not bizarre. He hates us right now. He's 12. <laughs> nah, that's probably not true of Jesus. I need to take that back. <laughs> they assumed that Jesus was with other family members. And it took a couple of days, probably, for Mary to convince Joseph, hey, this is a serious deal. I can't find Jesus. Nobody knows where he is. So they pack up their stuff, and the Bible says that they double back to the town where the religious festival was. And do you know where they found Jesus? At church. How appropriate is that? (laughs) The mom says, You had us so worried. What are you doing? Jesus looks at his parents and says, you should know by now. I've been sent to do something. You brought me to this religious festival, one that would be really, really important later on in Jesus' life. And he was triggered to leave his family and do the work that God had called him to do. Some of us, especially in the American South, our families have trapped us in particular ways and we need to see that Jesus himself separated away from his family of origin to do the particular work that God had sent him to do. He seized the opportunity to be around the religious and talk about religious things. The Bible says that they were amazed at the way that Jesus could talk as a teenager. The Bible also says, Luke chapter 2 verse 52, here's what happened. Jesus was built. He grew in wisdom. Making the turn now, let's talk about it this way. It was tragedy for Ruth. It was a family errand for David. It was attempted and premeditated murder for Paul. And it was a religious holiday for Jesus. All of these served as trigger events to grow the people involved. Here's what I want to tell you very plainly today. Today, right now, in this moment, God is doing his part. There's evidence of this all around us. Look at the people in this room. Soak in the stories that you know about, think about your own. God is at work. He's doing his part to build us. He's doing his part to rebuild this church. The question we have today is, are we doing ours? Now, I'm not going to ask you a question that large without giving you the framework you need to answer it well. In fact, this would be a good way before we show this image. This would be a good way for you to talk about what God is doing in your life as you're attempting to be honest with the people in your life. This week, I encourage you, start at your home and then work your way out with safe people that you can trust. Use this graph to talk about the activity of God and if he is building you. Let's take this image in. Here's what happens first. You have the trigger. These people had their trigger, and God is going to move into your life and interrupt your story in a very particular way. It happens for all of us. Where are the Christians in the room? Now, these aren't all the triggers, but they're a list of the most common. Failure, tragedy, opportunity, calling, opposition, passion. That moment where you become aware of God in a new way, and it often happens through difficult circumstances. That's the trigger. What was your trigger? Mine was a diagnosis. Mine was another diagnosis. That's what God used in my life as a trigger. Infertility, depression, shame. I'm just going to tell you my triggers. You got a minute? This stuff's real, isn't it, people? We have a trigger and then we have a choice. I want you to notice all of us that have a little bit too much John Wayne in us. I want you to notice how difficult it is to read that word submission. I also want you to notice that the only way, the only way, the only way for God to build us up is if we submit to his plan. God, he he loves us in this really, special and unique way it isn't a forced love it's an opportunity to love which means we have a choice we have an opportunity to not love we have a choice and an opportunity to rebel if you want to see someone's life go sideways you open up the bible and look for places where people rebel David he rebelled It costs so much for his family. Rebellion is a way to think about it here, our plan. Rebellion means that you embrace your plan. You commit to your plan. You double down on your plan. You make sure that there are resources allocated for your plan. That's what rebellion sounds like. Submission looks like Jesus in the garden before he goes to the cross to save our souls. He says the phrase, it isn't what I want to do, God, that's important here. It's what you want. That's what submission sounds like. As a result, Jesus was built up. The Bible tells us he sits at the right hand of God, his rightful place, and he invites us to join him. Jesus knows what it's like to submit to God's plan. Do you? Big question as we're closing today. It's either discipleship through submission or decay through your own plans. Which one are you choosing? Discipleship, looking more like Jesus over time, or are you choosing decay? What are the signals in your life sending you? Remember, I refuse to allow the enemy to move in with judgment and guilt and shame. Remember that no matter where you are in this graph, you are welcome here. Some of us, we found this place just like me right after one of those triggers, giving God one last shot to be involved with him. If that's where you are post-trigger, if you had one of those Saturday nights that you feel really bad about on Sunday morning, welcome. So many of us have found God in that place. If you've chosen your own ways through rebellion, you knew that God was calling you to do something, but you just couldn't muster the courage to be able to do it, welcome. If you're caught in rebellion, you are welcome here. If you're one of those few elite among us that have taken the top road, you've submitted to God's plan, you've experienced His growth over time, welcome. We need you here. Where there are a lot of broken people, we need a lot of doctors. Anybody with me? If you're mature in Christ, you are welcome here too. There's work to do. And so we say together collectively, as we're wrapping up today, May God add to our number those who have been triggered out there that can be healed in here because of the work of Jesus Christ. May it be so. Before I wrap up today, I have to let you know of a very particular and detailed need that we have inside of our community. This past week, we were made aware of a situation of domestic violence where a mom and three kids had to flee out of fear for their own lives. Thank God we know about this need because we're the kind of community that cares. Let me be very specific with you right now. We have enough goods accepting one thing to look after this family in the short term thanks to the generosity of one of our staff members. We don't need more clothes or more things related to children. What we need is money to care for this family long term. We need to get them to a situation where they can be safe and cared for, but that's expensive in America. Let me give you three options, is that okay? I got 90 seconds left to make this pitch. The first option is that you give money to our hope for fund. Yes, that still exists and yes, we are doing spectacular things still right now in our community. You can take a picture of a QR code, or you can go to our website and click on give. You just drop down on that page and click hope for, and you can give an amount of money, even $15. Imagine this. Do the math. If every person in this room sacrificed one thing this week that was $10, you could change this family's life. I encourage you to do that. My wife and I are going to be doing the same right after this service. You can give money, and there's no shame in that. We need it. If you're a person that wants to go to a little more effort than that, I would encourage you over this month when you visit the grocery store, and I see you there, we're all there every three days. When you go to the grocery store, you think, I'm going to get a gift card for this family. I'm going to forego whatever special drink I get or special treat. For me, it would be the donuts, and I'm going to get a gift card for this family. The last thing they need for these supplies is an outdoor refrigerator at our staff's home. Where this family is being housed right now, it's a big addition to that one household. We need an extra refrigerator. If you know people in that business or you have one yourself, please let us know. If you get those gift cards and we're not here in the building, there's actually a mailbox just to the right of the double doors as you're entering in the building. An old school mailbox. You can just drop those gift cards or any monetary gift that you would like to. And our commitment is any of that money that comes in is going straight to this family. You know why? Because sometimes people need to meet Jesus through practical needs being met. We don't want anything from this family. We don't want any glory for taking him in. In fact, we're pushing away from attention. But I would love for this community and these two services to satisfy their physical needs through giving for the next six months. I think we can do it. Take that step if you feel God tugging on your heart to be obedient to that. Let's pray quickly. God, this morning, just with this lightness and humor and seriousness and worship, I just feel like we have experienced your character start to finish. I thank you for that. I thank you for meeting us here in this service that felt more like an experience than something to check off the box. God, we give you credit for that. We give you honor for that. We thank you for loving us in a way that commits you to building us over time. That's faithfulness. Be with us this week. We need you to make it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.